Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval, terms apply. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Working, Slate's podcast about what people do all day. I'm Julia Turner, Slate's editor-in-chief, and today I am hijacking this podcast for a special one-off episode. Mark Van Honecker is a regular contributor to Slate. He writes the What's That Thing feature for our design blog, The Eye, and most recently identified the tiny little holes that appear at the bottom of airplane windows. But he has a couple of other jobs as well. He's a transoceanic pilot for British Airways. He flies the 747 all over the globe. And he's also recently written a book called Skyfaring, A Journey with a Pilot, about what it's like to be a pilot. So we decided to meet him at his workplace and subject him to a good old-fashioned working grilling. What's your name and what do you do? Uh, my name is Mark Van Honecker, and I'm, a, I'm an airline pilot. I'm a senior first officer for British Airways on the uh, 747 fleet. So tell us how you got this job. So I I came to flying a little later than some of my colleagues. I initially uh, wanted to be a historian, so I, I trained, uh, I started a PhD in history, and I quit that because I thought it was for the time to, to try my, uh, my hand at a, at a childhood dream. I'd always wanted to be a pilot. And then in 2003, I joined... British Airways as a first officer on the Airbus fleet, and then in 2007 I, uh, I switched, and now I fly the uh, the airplane I wanted to fly when I was a five-year-old, which is a, a 747. And tell us where we are right now. So we are in the cockpit of a of a 747-400 here at JFK. Um, this aircraft is uh, we call it Victor Victor. Its registration ends with VV, and uh, I last flew this aircraft maybe uh, a month or so ago uh, from London to New York. Uh, I first flew it in, I think, in 2007 from uh, Sao Paulo to Rio. That's so interesting that you have a specific relationship with this particular bird, this this air beast. How many 747s do you typically fly? How many are in the fleet that you have some familiarity with or relationship to? I think it's in the, the fleet is in the mid-40s now, and at some point in the next few years, I'll have a chance to bid, to bid for another aircraft, and you know that'll be a, that'll be a tough choice. But, and. Uh, yes. 
Oh, great, thank you. Thanks. How you doing? Mark, tell us what the sound is. So this is uh, the, uh, the battery, the main batteries, and uh, our colleague here from engineering is about to turn the uh, external power on, which has just been plugged into the aircraft. Can we just run the APU? Or? Okay. So here you can see the, um, the auxiliary power unit which is the little engine at the back of the plane. Uh, so that's the exhaust gas temperature, 400 uh, degrees centigrade. Uh, and now it's reached its 100% speed on its main fan, which now shows up here that the power is available. So these are the aircraft generators that we use on the ground. That is. All right, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. So Mark, describe, uh, describe what just happened. Because I'm not here as a, as a pilot today, um, I'm not allowed to to operate the controls uh, because I'm I'm here for a podcast, not for um, to fly this thing. Somewhere. Not to fly this summer unless we uh, unless we get some some approval. Um, and so the engineer came and he uh, switched on the external power. Great. Um, so describe this technology. The the Boeing seven four seven is a plane that was originally des- designed in the sixties. Uh, I'm looking at knobs, dials, buttons. The aesthetic I would describe as um, like your parents' eight-track player that you found in the closet. It's got like a the technological aesthetic is not 2015. Describe a little bit what this what this looks like. Well, this um, if you compare it to the original 747, um, this you know this has obviously been been updated in a lot of ways. It's a glass cockpit. Um, there are um, a lot of uh, developments that have taken place uh, beneath the surface, you might say. A lot of, a lot of those have been added on and, and are not transparent up here. All right. Pretend we are here. This flight, uh, I think this evening around 7, this vehicle is going to return to London. Um, if you were going to be one of the pilots on that flight, what time would you show up at the airport? What would you do when you got in this cockpit? Um, so we'd be at the airport... Uh, just just over an hour before departure, um, and then when we walk in the flight deck, um, there's a whole bunch of roles. Uh, you know, everything is divided into the the pilot who's actually operating the flight, and the one who's um, in the, the the second role. Everything that happens next is based on which role you're in that day. One of the things we'd first do is look at the logbook. There's also a cabin log and the, 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 a separate log just for the the cabin equipment. Uh, and then once we're in the cockpit, you know, there's there's a whole series of steps which are taken depending on which role you have. So one of my favorite things really are the um, inertial uh, reference systems. Uh, you can turn it up, actually, if you see outboard CRT, and just turn that to the right. Oh. So, um, so that screen is, uh, it, show, it will sh- eventually show an artificial horizon. Now those are uh, obviously not working at the moment uh, because the inertial reference systems are not aligned. So we can turn these on here, and they begin an alignment process um, and what they're doing now uh, is two things they're sensing the uh, uh, rotation of the earth and they're also sensing uh, uh, gravity so if they know where they are without any external reference at all which I think is just one of the coolest things 
So it's like the plane has to reset before each flight to learn where it is, and then it tracks where it goes in relationship to that initial space. But the plane has to be motionless for that to for the process to, to occur. And if you, the plane was moved, for example, if the airplane was towed off from this gate, uh, they that alignment process would stop, and it would it would say, you know, we've detected motion, you know, we um we need to be still. So it's like its moment of zen before flight. <laughs> All right, so you give the plane its moment of zen, <laughs> then what? Well, um, the most, actually, probably even before that or while that was going on, we would get a weather report. Uh, we can do that now if you like. Sure. Um, just grab the... Uh, there are about 40 knobs in the small section of the many, many knobs that he's fiddling with. So this is a... Um, uh, it's called an ACARS system, which allows us... It's like a text messaging system with the ground. And that will have the uh, the latest uh, weather updates here. There we are. There's literally like a receipt printing out of the dashboard. Um, so it's saying the wind is from the northeast to 10 knots. The visibility is eight statute miles. Uh, the uh, lowest level of significant cloud is 600 feet. Uh, the temperature is 12 degrees Celsius, and uh, the dew point uh, is nine degrees. And then this is one of the most important things on here. This is the altimeter setting, which is a 3015. So the difference between 3014 where it was and 3015 at the original setting, it's that we were about 20, is that meters, feet off the uh, that's, ground? That's feet. It's very little. 20 uh, feet off the ground, which is just meaning that we're up in the cockpit, right? Or that the plane is 20 feet off the ground? No, these are calibrated. Uh, these aren't calibrated for the cockpit. This is for the, the elevation of JFK, which I can ah. check here is da, 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 da. It's, uh, 12 feet. Of course, we're not actually at the runway. So air- airports have their own slopes. That's ma- amazing. So when you're landing, you know that you're trying to get down to 12 feet, not to zero feet. Well, in practice, uh, that altimeter, that main one, which is driven by air pressure, um, it's not. Its accuracy isn't um, isn't all that good for that kind for that scale of measurement. Instead, we use something uh, called a radio altimeter, um, and that is is there. And um, as you can see, it says minus eight, uh, which is one of the another uh, idiosyncrasy of of how a plane is is different on the ground than when it is in flight. So when a plane is in flight, uh, with its landing gear extended, the the gear obviously uh, the it is extended a little bit. It compresses on landing, so it's actually hanging a little farther down from the plane in the air than it is on the ground. And also the plane is, 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 a, is slightly nose up. So when the plane lands, um, that uh, that minus eight is is the altitude of the of the wheels as we come into land. After we land, the plane sinks below that altitude. And so here at the gate, it shows a, it shows a negative altitude. So you get the weather reports, uh, and then what? Well, I was, I, if I was the operating pilot, I would be doing my walk around of the aircraft. Meanwhile, the, uh, the captain, if he was going to be the, the second pilot for that day, the, uh, the pilot monitoring, um, he would be up here. He would be uh, scanning these overhead panels, making sure the all the systems are in the correct positions for the pre-flight uh, stage. Uh, he would be loading a route, uh, which can be done either uh, uh, by ha- by hand by entering the waypoints or the or the, um, the airways, or by downloading it electronically, which is normally how it's done now. We can load a route if you like. Uh, yeah, let's load a route. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, where would you like to? Uh, sure. uh, well, this plane's going to uh, Heathrow later tonight, so let's go to Heathrow. So uh, KJFK is the origin code for for, J, for for JFK, 
Uh, Heathrow is a little less intuitive, it's EGLL. Um, and then we load a uh, departure runway, which is uh, 3 1 left. And then we load a departure pattern, and then we would activate it. Um, and meanwhile, the, uh, the IRSs are nearing their completion. They're asking us to load the position of the air, their, their starting position. The, that's the inertial system we talked about before. Um, and so I'm just going to enter the position from the GPS system. And that'll get us started. And so now you see these screens have all come to life. Um, so that's the primary flight display. So there's a blue, which indicates the sky. There's the brown, which indicates the earth. Um, and that shows uh, we're right in the middle, so we're, we're level. The aircraft is, is level now. Um, and this is the initial bit of our route on the map. So you can see that uh, there's the, uh, the runway, there's the airport. Uh, we're turning out a left turn over this beacon called Canarsie, um, and then we would build the route from there. But yeah, so we, we would enter it using waypoint names and airways, and we build that route up, or we download it electronically. So when you're downloading it electronically, who's that from? Who maintains that? Is that something that that's from? That's from, yeah, so there's a team of flight planners at Heathrow who are working uh, uh, 24 hours a day because, of course, it's always a departure time somewhere in the world of an aircraft. Okay. And so suppose you get a route, and um, and you like it, but you feel like, oh, I'd, you know, I actually prefer to cross Iceland on the north side rather than the south side or something <laughs> like that. Are you allowed to fiddle with it? Um, we can, if you had a good reason to ask for a different route, then, then that would be something that they, that they would do for you. But uh, just because you wanted to have a good view of Iceland, they might, they might be... They might not oblige so easily with that one. What would qual uh, qualify as a good reason? You could have, uh, there could be a, some turbulence forecast en route, uh, and you might be thinking you're going to go at a different flight level, a different altitude than the flight planners originally planned. You could say, this altitude, uh, that turbulence looks like something we would want to, uh, to go around, and then you could ask for a reroute. But, of course, the flight planners have, have taken all that into account anyways. They're, they're, that's their job. So it's, it's very rare to ask for a different route. Um, all right, so it's go time. The passengers are loaded, the bags are in, your route is loaded, it's time to take off. What happens? Uh, you know, long before that happened, we would uh, do a briefing. So we do a briefing, which will be 10, 15 minutes talking about the flight, um, talking about the departure, talking about any significant uh, terrain or weather in the area. Are you just briefing each other or briefing the entire cabin crew? Um, we brief the cabin crew about uh, the points that are most important from their perspective, such as turbulence. And then the flight crew, the pilots, will then have a briefing which relates to the technical aspects of, of the departure. Um, we'll talk about the, uh, the performance aspects of the departure, so how much power we're using. Uh, the power varies uh, enormously depending on the length of the runway and the, the wind and the weight of the aircraft. So an aircraft going from here to London, it's a very short flight for a 747, and uh, we wouldn't use all that much power on takeoff, whereas on a, a flight from Singapore back to London, which is our heaviest route, our, our longest route, uh, on the 747, that would uh, be a much higher power setting. And Probably still not full power, though. And that's because the, the plane going on such a long route would be heavier because it would be carrying more fuel. That's right, yeah. yeah. Got it. Um, so now that we've done our briefing uh, and, we, and we don't have any questions for each other, we're, we're satisfied that we're ready for our departure, then I would say, okay, Julia, uh, pre-flight checklist. Uh, so it's pre-flight checklist. All right, so you've, I've pulled this laminated car that lives on the dashboard literally the way you would keep, like, your beach parking permit. Uh, and then I'd say, all right, inspections and security. Completed. Oxygen. Um, so I would say tested 100%. Uh, 
Uh, all right, flight instruments. I would look at the uh, various headings here. So heading of 170 degrees on your side, 170 degrees on my side, 170 here on this uh, standby compass. And then I would look at the altimeters. So I would say I've got about 40 feet on yours and uh, yeah, 30 on mine and 40 on the standby. And then I would confirm the altimeter settings as well. So I'd say 3015, 3015, and uh, 3015. All right, next, uh, the parking brake. Uh, that is set, which you can see here. It says. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know 747 said parking brake. They do. It's uh, it's right here. Don't touch it. <laughs> <laughs> I've been le- leaning my knee against it this whole interview, by the way. Uh, all right, the fuel control switches. Um, so that, that's the engine power essentially. So they're they're in cutoff. Yeah. Uh, PFD. Um, so we would have loaded some speeds for departure. Um, so we haven't done that, but I would read them out. I would say uh, V2 uh, 100. 70 knots, LNAV, VNAV armed, and altitude uh, 4,000 feet, let's say. What's V2? V2 is the climb out speed. Okay. Uh, CDU pre-flight? Completed. Taxi and takeoff briefing? Uh, completed. All right. and, then, and then you'd say pre-flight checklist complete. Pre-flight checklist complete. And then you'd stow it in the... There's actually a nice little, uh, like a little groove that it, it lives in so it can't slide around in case of turbulence. All right, so what does it feel like to uh, be in control of a plane as you drive it off a runway and take off? Well, it's, it's just an amazing feeling. I mean, it's, it's something we practice so much in the simulator, and, of course, we've, we've done it so many times at this point in, in one's career, but it never gets tiring. It's, it's just, uh, yeah, it's an amazing feeling. So I've got, I would have my hands here on the, uh, on the four thrust levers uh, when we were on the runway and ready to go. I would advance them to an initial power setting. And then I'd say setting thrust, and I would press these switches here at the top, and they would, uh, the auto throttle, the, the sort of cruise control would then uh, move the, all the thrust levers forward to the pre-calculated setting. And you as the captain would say thrust set, from the, um, and then uh, we're hurtling down the runway, call 80 knots, we're comparing the airspeeds are working, um, and then you'd call V1, then you'd call rotate, and I would lift the nose, and then we would climb away, and then when you saw that... Uh, the altimeters were registering a, a, a climb, you would say positive rate, and then I would say gear up, and you'd pull that very hefty handle there, and uh, and off we go. And pulling the hefty handle, gear up, is that pulling up your landing yeah, gear? Yeah, that raises all the landing gear. That's somewhat incredible to think about. Um, how routine does that feel if you've been doing this since 2003? So you've been doing it for 12 years. Uh, what what can surprise you sometimes when you're just taking off a flight on a given day? Well, I th- it's just, it is something that you've done again and again, but it doesn't, it still feels amazing. I mean, it's still a, you know, you're still aware that, that this is, you know, one of the most amazing planes that's ever flown. It's, 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 ne- it's never lost its excitement to me. Um, and of course that's, you know, heavily overlaid by our training and our procedures and, uh, but that doesn't, I mean, it's not, it's not a great thing to do. I, I, I rarely, um, yeah, I'm always pretty happy to come to work. So at some point at the beginning of the flight, as a passenger, I know that I often hear the, you know, this is your captain speaking, and today we're going to wherever, and, and we'll be flying this or that way. So first of all, I'm curious, um, you know, what you say and when you say it. Second, I've noticed over the years that pilots sometimes have different 
communication strategies and on mic personas as they're talking to the uh, to the, the uh, passengers. So how do you approach that? How do pilots think about that? Well, the first announcement is, is a welcome on board, and we. Uh, because it's such a large plane, we can't actually see when all the passengers are on board from the cockpit. Um, so uh, as the boarding is complete, we'll get a call from the cabin crew downstairs. There's a, an interphone system that, so we can call anywhere on the aircraft. They'll call us up and say, um, everyone's on board. Um, and we wait for that to happen because the announcement includes information that everyone should hear about the, the flight time and also our seatbelt policy, for example. Um, yeah, so we'll do that in the, the last five or ten minutes before departure. Um, and then normally they won't hear from the, the flight crew again until uh, 40 minutes before landing on a long-haul flight. Uh, we, most of our flights are overnight. In fact, there's our next, there's our next flight coming in now. Um, a 747 in the window has just, uh, has just touched down. And, uh, yeah, so obviously passengers are trying to sleep uh, for a lot of the time, um, so we, we try to keep it as quiet as we can. Um. So one thing I'm curious about is um, I think passengers hear a lot about how much of flight is automated these days, how much you're doing manually, and how much um, you know the, the increasingly advanced systems do for you. It always sounds or seems like, or I have the perception that landing and takeoff are the times when there's more manual engagement from the pilots. How busy does it feel once you're aloft? Like, how occupied are you? Is it like playing a very frenetic game of dodgeball where you're constantly have things coming at you that you have to not at all monitor no. or is it very serene um there's no point in the flight that i would describe in the in the terms that you use i mean it, it's to me it's driving that feels that way <laughs> when you get on a, when i get on a highway after landing i think like you know why isn't this better controlled why are these cars you know why isn't this you know being supervised in some in some way that's analogous to how uh, how carefully supervised everything is in the sky um at the, towards the end of a flight, obviously, we disconnect the autopilot again. Um, it's, uh, it's always a great experience to do that. It, it, the airplane comes alive. Uh, again, it makes a very clear uh, signal uh, that the autopilot has been disconnected because it's not something you would want to happen that you'd be unaware of. Um, <laughs> so uh, if you just uh, press that button with your thumb there. Uh-huh. There you go. Press that. There you go. So that's the... Uh, that's cool, huh? So that's the, and that will, in, in flight, that will, that sound will continue until you press it again. So the idea is that you would never have disconnected the autopilot without uh, being aware that you've done so. It and is, it is good that that sound does not uh, broadcast over the system loudspeaker to the passengers. <laughs> <laughs> How frequently do you disengage the autopilot during a flight? Is it typically just when you come in for a landing? Yeah, normally it's for the descent. Um, it's for the climb out and the descent. We'd be flying by hand. And the cruise, obviously, so many of our flights are... 12, 13, 14 hours long. Um, the autopilot is engaged then, but uh, we still speak of ourselves as flying the aircraft uh, through the autopilot and the, the flight director uh, systems, which are located on the upper panel here. Um, and so uh, if the air traffic control give us a new uh, altitude to fly to, um, we will do that through uh, through this panel here rather than, than manually flying it. Um, but there's also you know, a lot of times when we're you know, we're avoiding clouds that might be turbulent, for example, we'll, we'll be, we won't be hand flying the aircraft, but we will be directing its path using the autopilot systems, if that makes sense. And that's, that's kind of a, a hybrid, uh, I mean, we're, the autopilot is, is physically moving the, the control surfaces, but it, its path is being directed by us. And so it's, it's not really 
in a way where we're, we are still flying it, if that makes sense. Right. So this is an incredibly novel place to be sitting for me, but this is your office. I mean, yeah. your relationship to this space is like my relationship to my, you know, my dumb wood desk with my dumb little wrist rest for my mouse. How do you experience this space? You know, so it's the end of the long flight. You've landed in Heathrow. Uh, you've, you've arrived safely. Um, what are the things you do before you kind of clock out? Well, it's a strange thing when we walk onto... When we walk onto the flight deck, there is a sense that it's going to be our home for the next 12, 13 hours. And uh, so you do really settle into it. And, you know, I take my tie off. I take my, my hat off. There's a, there's a hat rack up there, which is, which is designed for that. Uh, there's also a little closet where you hung your jacket when we came yeah, in. That's right. There's a bedroom. Um, there's a, you know, bunk room. Um, and so you, 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 you do feel really, um, you do feel very comfortable here. You spend, we spend so much of our, of our working lives here while the whole world is sort of turning below us. Um, and at the end of the flight, there was this moment where you, um, you know, we, we complete another checklist, yet another checklist uh, as we shut down the aircraft. Um, and we gather our things, um, you know, our iPads on which our charts are all stored now. Um, you know, we make sure we've left it um, tidy for the next crew. So we've taken our cups of, of, of tea uh, back to the galley. Uh, and, uh, and then we pack up and and we sort of say farewell to this aircraft, and then uh, just like the passengers do, really. And, and we go off to our hotel, and, and sometimes we pass the next crew coming back who are going to then take this plane on to somewhere else. And it's this, it is a very, um, it, it, in that sense, it's an it's a anonymous space, and yet it's, it's also one that's, that's, uh, that's very meaningful. How much time do you spend while you're flying looking out the window, and what are the coolest things to see? Well, the... The lookout is still an important part of, of our job. Uh, it's, it's uh, you know, with all the, the air traffic control systems and, and the transponders and all that, it's still important for us to be looking out the window. Um, so at night, you know, with the lights in here, I mean, many of the switches that you see around you are related to the lighting of either the panels or the, the interior lighting. And so that'll be turned very low at night. And so we're watching this while we're doing this, this lookout. Uh, we're also, you know, seeing auroras. Uh, we're seeing shooting stars one right after another some nights. Uh, we're seeing, um, you know, the full moon rise and planets rise. Uh, the north. I really prefer flying at night. I think it's um, it's much it's it's much quieter. Uh, there's often fewer aircraft in the sky, um, and so there, it has this very peaceful moment. Sometimes we're over the North Atlantic, uh, like this plane will be in a few hours, and you know, nearly everyone on the plane is asleep except for the crew. Uh, and uh, there is this sense of the sort of vessel, you know, sailing sailing over the ocean, and um, to be up here. Uh, you know, looking out and, and, and guiding that journey is, is just an incredible feeling. It's uh, the five-year-old in me is pretty happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, how does your psychological sense of your office encompass all of the different airports you fly to? One thing that's striking about your book is you mention, um, you know, having an exercise class you go to sometimes in Vancouver when you're staying at the hotel there or the spinach lunch treat you like to get at the airport in Tripoli. And I, you know, I have the two exercise classes I like to go to in lower Manhattan and the, you know, 10 lunch places I like to go to near the slate offices. But how does it feel to have your, to be a regular at places in a wide map all over the globe? Well, that is one of the weirdest uh, feelings about the job. Uh, And it's true of airports, of course. Um, So there are other airports all over the world that we know. But there is also this strange sense that, uh, um, you know, if, the, if, you, if, you're, if you like 
cooking Indian food, you can pick up your spices in Delhi next week. There is a sense in which the planet is um, is yours. I mean, a lot of my friends from college are scattered all over the world. I've got a good friend from high school in Singapore. You know, I have dinner with her and her husband four or five times a year, and it really reflects uh, what it is that airplanes make possible for everyone um, who takes a long-haul flight. Right. In a way, you're living the ultimate version of the life that planes allow all of us to live from time to time. Yeah. yeah. And then I get to come home. <laughs> Where is home? Uh, New York. Um, I love flying. It's very thrilling to be here, but a lot of people don't. They're afraid of it. What's the thing that you tell people who are afraid of flying to reassure them? Well, a lot of people who don't like, uh, who are uncomfortable flying uh, don't like turbulence. And uh, turbulence is uncomfortable, but it's, it's, it's never dangerous. Um, in fact, uh, on the in-flight entertainment is a really good 20-minute program called Flying with Confidence. Um, we often recommend it to our passengers. Uh, the captain who speaks on it, his, uh, who, who does the video, his name is Steve Allwright, which is just the, uh, <laughs> the perfect name for the job, and it's a great video, and, and uh, I encourage any, you know, any customer who's, uh, who's feeling nervous about flying to, to watch it or even to, um, to ask to speak with us before a flight. We're always happy to talk to passengers uh, uh, before departure. All right, so we've gotten the uh, pilot's eye tour of the cockpit, uh, but the 747 had to had to go and rest away from the gate and relinquish the gate so an actual working airplane could come in. So now we're sitting in the terminal, occasionally being interrupted by... Uh, Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. That was well-timed. Occasionally being interrupted by the uh, flight announcements, but we'll just ask a few follow-up questions to Mark here. So having had a bit of a sense of what are the tasks that make up your day as a pilot, what qualities do you think make someone good at this job? Well, a lot of our training focuses uh, obviously on you know, acquiring a certain body of technical knowledge um, that you simply have to have to be able to fly. Uh, and then you also, um, you know, you, need, you simply need the, you know, the flying skills, the, the, sort, of, the sort of hand the, the hand-to-eye uh, ability to, to learn how to, to operate an aircraft. But, you know, if we take those two as given, one of the, the major changes in aviation over the last, uh, I guess, 30 years or so has, has been uh, something called crew, crew Resource Management, CRM. It's, it's, a, it's a very, every pilot will know this acronym. Um, and I believe it came initially from NASA. Um, and it's, it's talking about how to, get, how to get the most out of a team of people. Um, so every six months, we spend two days uh, in, a sim- in an aircraft simulator, a full motion simulator that uh, simulates the motion and the visual aspects of flying. Uh, and of course, and that's training and, and also a series of, of exams. Um, and, and of course, in addition to the, the technical knowledge and the, the flying skills, one of the things that we look at is, uh, is the crew resource management. For example, uh, we might, we're often videotaped uh, during those sessions in the simulator. And afterwards, the trainer might say to us, so, uh, Julia, you asked a question uh, that was a leading question rather than an open question. So, I, uh, you know, you made clear what you thought the answer was in the way you asked that question. That's not how we do things. We ask open questions. And, you know, we'll fast forward to the point you asked your leading question. Um, or, uh, you know, for charts now, uh, one of, you know, it used to be that aircraft had large libraries of charts on board, obviously, for the whole world for a 747. Um, now those are on our iPad. Um, so, you know, it's important that when we're talking about something which is on our screen, that that device is, is, is between us, that we can both see it, and that we're 
well, on the same page, to use a cliche. You know, and so even even these small things such as body language um, come into um, into the the package of training, especially for a multi-crew environment, which is how one of the ways that this is different from flying a Cessna, for example. What constitutes a really good day? Like, when do you uh, go home at night and think, like, this is the best job? It was so awesome that X happened today. What, what kinds of things are the X in that sentence? Well, I have I have a lot of days like that, but I think it's for me it's really the the longest. It's it's at the end of a really long flight, um, and a flight to a place that you know when I was growing up I never imagined I would go to. Um, so like Cape Town, for example. So you know we fly from. You know, we fly from London, we take off, it's, it's dinner time, the passengers are eating. You know, we pass over Paris and Barcelona and Algiers, and then it's getting dark and we're over the Sahara. Um, and then we pass, uh, you know, Lagos or Accra, and then we're out over the open ocean, and everyone on the board is sleeping except for the, the flight attendants and the, and the pilots. Um, you know, and then the sun comes up and we're, we're over Namibia, and you can see the, 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 the dunes, and then, and then you're talking to controllers now who are based in Johannesburg and then in Cape Town. And then you know you come in over Table Mountain and and you land and and do the finish all the paperwork, say goodbye to, to our customers, and then you know I go to the hotel and, and I've been up most of the night and um, you know and I and I lie that and they lie in the hotel with the window open and the breeze coming in off the South Atlantic and I just I just can't believe I, I still can't believe that that airplanes make that kind of thing possible and it's uh, so for me it's it's the longest it's the longest flights to the places that that were when I was a child the most unlikely. Is that because you just marvel at the distance that these machines make possible? Yeah, yeah. I think, I think um, we forget how, you know, we talk about how connected the world is now, you know, with computers. Well, I, I mean, to me, it's you know, a long time from now, aviation and computers will, will seem to have, to be things that happened at about the same time, right? I mean, maybe eighty or hundred years, eighty years apart, seventy years. Um, but to me, I, I think. I think that aviation will will almost be the more significant one. The, the idea that we could that you could go across the world and hear, uh, you know, languages and and birds and music and and streets in their in their own environment that you could that that experience would be possible to um, and would be open to a, at least a certain segment of, of the population and, and a very quickly growing segment. I, I think uh, it's one of the things that's reshaped how we see the planet. Can you talk a little bit about just the schedule? I think this is one of the things that's most confusing to non-pilots, non-flight attendant types. Um, you know, ha- how many days off do you have? Do you regulate your schedule to your new time zone? I guess that's a north-south flight, so bad example. But um, how, how do you not go crazy with the pressure on your body and your circadian rhythms? Well... You know, of course, on a flight of that length, uh, there would be three pilots, so we would have a designated break uh, of, of three, three and a half hours. Um, for me, uh, exercise is really one of the uh, is really one of the, the best ways uh, uh, to deal with 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 either jet lag or with with nights that you've spent uh, that have on which you haven't had a full night of sleep. Uh, if you sometimes, for example, I'll, I'll be flying off somewhere in the evening, and uh, I'll be I know I'm going to be awake the whole night even if it's just a short night, for example, from New York back to London. So I'll want to have a sleep in the afternoon, and uh, I, at a time I wouldn't normally be sleeping. But, you know, if you go and run, like, four miles and then eat a huge sandwich and lie down, you're going to fall asleep. <laughs> like, it's, you're going to, you know, and, you know, I'll have a, a two- or three-hour nap in the afternoon, and then um, and then I'll get on a flight here. And, of course, when this 
when the first flight lands back in London, it's only it's only one in the morning here um, in New York. Uh, where uh, yeah, so you it's not as if you stayed up the entire night at all, anyways. Uh, and then on a longer flight, we would have uh, we would have a third or, or even a fourth pilot. When you take those breaks on the plane, can you actually sleep? You're up in the little bunk room adjacent to the cockpit. Like, do you just drop off and actually I, sleep? Or? I sleep um, incredibly well in the bunk. Uh, it's it's so dark there. I mean, it's it's designed to be. It's the darkest place I ever sleep. Yeah, I put my earplugs in and and I'm out. And there's a. You're never like watching Friends reruns, hoping to not <laughs> off on your iPad. Well, on a on a daylight flight, uh, on a daylight flight, like for example, from London to San Francisco, where the entire flight takes place during. One long Nor- normal, day. yeah, and but a normal a normal waking hours day or nearly. Um, then I might watch. Actually, I'm rewatching Cheers uh, from beginning <laughs> to end. Um, so the reason that we're here and the reason that we had the privilege of interviewing you in the cockpit of a, you know, of a British Airways seven four seven that's you know stopped for a couple hours uh, here at JFK before it turns back around and goes to Heathrow is uh, not just that you are a pilot, but also that you have just published a book. Skyfaring, A Journey with a Pilot, uh, which is just out in the U.S. Actually, we're interviewing you on publication day. This podcast is going to come out a few days afterward. Um, One of the things that strikes me about the book is that it is a very, it's a psychological impression of flying, more so than I think people would necessarily expect. It It was too irresistible to interview you about the nuts and bolts of all those levers while we were sitting in the cockpit. But I think what your book captures is a sense of how the ability to be anywhere within not too many hours changes your understanding of the globe. Tell us a little bit about um, why you wrote the book and what you learned writing it. At the simplest level, I wanted to write the book to, to share what I love about my job. Um, I, th- I think uh, that the scale, the technical, the technical achievement of airplanes is amazing. I think their vertical journey is amazing, whether even if they didn't take us anywhere at all, simply the fact that, they, that we go up. Um, and then come back down again um, is an amazing thing. I was at uh, an air museum uh, outside Washington in College Park, Maryland, recently, and there was a photo of uh, that's, that someone had taken in, the, I guess, in the 1920s from an early flight. And, and you know, you saw, you know, what those airplanes were like. Those, I mean, you're basically sitting on a on a winged bicycle with a, with a, mo- with a moped motor attached. And uh, and she, this woman took a camera up with her on her flight, and she took a photo of her hometown. And in that photo of her hometown are her feet, because you know, you're, you know she's like you know sitting on the handlebar essentially. I mean, uh, and and uh, you know, in the book I asked people to send in their photos of the window seat, and I've gotten the book was published in the UK a few months ago, and I've gotten so, you know so many photos people have sent in, and you know we don't have, our feet we don't have, we no longer have to worry about our feet appearing in the photos we take from the window seat um, because we're in these amazing airliners now that that uh, that take us up, but. But I, I really do think that sense of of, of wonder at looking down at, at our at our world at where we came from is is still is still there, and uh, and and I re- tried to to recapture that that feeling and to describe why I love my job. One thing that strikes me in reading your book is that it reminds me what I love about flying, that sense of perspective and distance and, whoa, I guess those are the Alleghenies. They really look like little ridges in the ground. And wow, that giant cataract must be Niagara Falls based on where it looks like we are on the map. Um, now that you've had this job for more than a decade, when you just sit in, you know, 
27D behind the wing. How does how the experience of flight change for you? Yeah, the book is is a is a sense is in a sense a, a view of what's only accessible in the cockpit. And one of the reasons I wrote the book was because, of course, children and adults can't come to the cockpit anymore during flight, which is something I did a lot as a kid. And so the book it is what I would show you about about uh, about my job. And yet it's also um, a description of the things that I like to notice when I'm flying as a passenger. So my, my friends always make fun of me when I ask for the uh, for the window seat. Um, but there's a lot of uh, things that are open to window seat passengers that uh, are not open uh, to pilots, for example. Uh, you know, I talk a lot about how the wing works, and you know, the passengers have a really good view of the wing, uh, which we don't actually have in the cockpit. I can barely see um, uh, one of the wings, and I can't see the other one at all. Whereas if you're a passenger, uh, my, the best window seats, in my view, are the ones just behind the wing where you can kind of see the world below, but you can also watch the wing and, and how the, the very small panels on it uh, can turn a plane that weighs nearly 400 tons. Um, I also, you know, it's such a cliche to say the world is overconnected now but by electronics, but I really like to fly as a passenger and uh, to, you know, I think the airplane mode is a blessing in some ways to... I often save books or magazine articles for a flight um, or a podcast. Um, and that sense of just looking out the window as the world goes by while somebody brings you a, you know, a sandwich and a, and a cup of coffee or tea, uh, I, I think it's a really special feeling. And uh, it's one that becomes more valuable the, more, the busier we are on the ground. And you know, that meditative space is something that's obviously for passengers and not for crew. Um, I kind of liken it to... You know why? You know the way we just the way in just the way that you would sit uh, in a, the European city you're flying to for a vacation and, and find a coffee shop and watch people go by. You know, on the way we watch the world go by, and um, I th- I think that's an amazing thing. Also, on some new aircraft uh, like the seven eight seven, the windows. I don't, have you flown on one? Or? I don't think so. The windows are huge. They're much bigger, um, and that airplane was designed. Um, you know, to save fuel, obviously, but also to reconnect passengers with flying, and that's essentially what those windows do. And you can, from no matter where you are in the cabin, even if you're not in a window seat, you have this this great awareness of, of the world outside. And um, for me, it's it's one of the best reminders of how uh, you know the magic. It's not just that the magic of flight has been sort of vanishing since the 20s or the 60s. I mean, there are these these upturns, and I think I think we're in one now. So, Mark, the experience of being in an airport can be unfamiliar, disorienting, and stressful to passengers between the taking off your shoes and taking your laptop out and throwing away your water bottle and uh, are you going to get to the gate on time and where is the gate and is the wayfinding any good in this airport and is the line too long at Starbucks for you to get caffeinated before the flight you were going to do all that work? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a jostle. Are you going to miss your plane? But you, um, you must experience airports differently. Do, how do they seem to you? Well, I I don't find them stressful. Obviously, I mean, it's it's my it's my uh, you know it's my office. It's a place that I spend a lot of time. Um, I think I like some airports more than others. Uh, I think uh, Heathrow uh, Terminal Five is uh, a really it's been around for I think maybe six years, seven years, something like that. And it's you know that was it's essentially a block of glass. I mean, it was designed to to be airy and light and to allow you to see the planes outside. Uh, um, yeah, I don't. I don't find I don't find airports to be stressful. They're sort of my my home environment. Um, obviously, I like some airports more than others. Uh, I really like my my home base, uh, Heathrow Terminal Five, which is, you know, it's full of enormous multi-story glass windows. It's very quiet. 
Uh, it has some satellite terminals uh, called 5B and 5C, and, and they're very, very quiet. You could just go there and, and watch the planes and listen to a podcast if you're you know, a passenger. Um, uh, I really like Vancouver's airport, uh, which is they've obviously taken account of all those studies that say you should have water features there's like fountains and aquariums and and all that um the la has a new international terminal which is really beautiful uh the new tom bradley terminal um so you know obviously i like some more than others but i don't i don't find them stressful the only thing uh i wish uh i was uh, better equipped to deal with is sometimes we'll be in a in an airport that we don't go to all that frequently like like delhi for me example uh, for me for example and uh, I'll be in the airport in, in Delhi, and someone will come up and ask me for, for directions uh, in the terminal. Because there you are in the seat yeah, in the exactly, hat, yeah. looking like you're in charge. And, uh, of course, I may not have been there. They've probably been to the airport in Delhi more than I have. Uh, so then, um, and, of course, uh, they may be speaking uh, in a language I don't understand. Um, so then, um, uh, you know, the most I can do to help somebody like that is to go and find a member of staff, uh, of our local staff there, and, and make sure that, that they're connected and then and then uh and then wish them a, a happy flight yeah you mentioned people not being able to come up to the cockpit during flight obviously those are um regulations that came into place i think after 9-11 right that the the cockpit doors are locked during flight um i i wasn't flying commercially before 9-11 so i don't know exactly when they came in but my my memory is uh is that they came in after that yeah and how do you feel about them? I mean, obviously, with the recent German Wings incident, there there were discussions of, you know, should they be locked? Should, should, what should the overrides be? How do you feel about those regulations? So I, I wouldn't comment on any security matters specifically, but uh, we do welcome visitors before and after a flight. So if you would like to come up to, co- to the cockpit uh, before departure, you can ask your cabin crew. Um, they can check with us if it's a good time. Sometimes it's a little busy before departure, uh, as you saw in the, in the cockpit yourself. Uh, um, but after a flight, uh, we always have time as we finish our paperwork uh, to, to show you around. We've got stickers, postcards, <laughs> all the old, uh, old style stuff. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. My guest, Mark Van Honecker, has a new book called Skyfaring, A Journey with a Pilot. You can find a link to it in the show notes of this podcast. Also, he's asking readers to submit their favorite photos taken from the window seats of planes. You can find a gallery of those photos and submit your own at skyfaring.com. New episodes of Working are coming soon. Make sure you're subscribed to Working in iTunes or your favorite podcast app so that you receive all the new episodes. Our producer is Alexis Diao. This show is recorded by Henry Malofsky. Joel Meyer is our managing producer, and our executive producer is Andy Bowers. I'm Julia Turner. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.